Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Poetic justice. When the threads of retribution are spun with a cruel elegance. In the realm of this dark muse, justice becomes an art form. Each stroke of punishment, carefully composed to mirror the transgression, it seeks to rectify. A perfect example of which would be the death of murderous psychopath and scumbag extraordinaire Lyndon McLeod. On December 27, 2021, after a hellish shooting spree that left five dead and two wounded, Poetic Justice would find Lyndon McLeod on a Denver crossroad when he came face to face with what he despised most in the world. A strong, powerful, courageous, and beautiful woman. Ladies and gentlemen, today we bring you the disturbing tale and the poetic justice and stupidity of Lyndon McCloud. Let's begin. Act 1. Just Another Lost Gen Xer. Lyndon McLeod was born in 1974. His father was an officer in the Air Force, and he spent most of his youth as a military brat, moving from one Air Force base to another, always the new kid, not making any real or sustaining friendships, spending a lot of time in England, where his American accent made him a complete outsider. He says his only friends were books, finding solace and comfort in the works of Piers Anthony and Ray Bradbury. Yeah, the thing to understand about Lyndon McLeod is that he was a true blue Gen Xer. He was the last generation to grow up without the internet, reading books, feeling disconnected and lonely. Now, the 90s were a weird time in youth culture. It was an era that looked back with a mixture of nostalgia and disgust at the recent past, but still sought meaning in it. Obviously, the nostalgia and love for the whole punk rock movement, which had really come and gone in a flash, turned into the grunge thing, epitomized by bands like Nirvana, Green Day, and Pearl Jam that were just absolutely huge. But there was also a lot of love for the whole 60s hippie thing. In the early to mid-90s, the Grateful Dead suddenly became the biggest selling concert band and were this whole cultural phenomenon. And a lot of the iconic hippies like Timothy Leary and even beatniks like William Burroughs were still alive and very meaningful, ending up on records or at events. There were a lot of New Age communities and Wiccans, a kind of 60s revival thing going on, side by side and often integrated into the whole grunge movement. For instance, Jane's Addiction had Mary Prankster Kankizi and his friends drive their bus to some of their shows, and both Ministry and Jane's Addiction played Grateful Dead songs. 
I think Neil Young really epitomized the hippie to grunge thing. He was even called the godfather of grunge. And festivals like Lollapalooza and the Horde displayed this as well. But nowhere displayed this dichotomy better than the utter disaster of Woodstock 99. Woodstock 99 would try to merge the peace and love, flower power movement of the 60s with the metal and grunge culture of the 90s, resulting in crass commercial exploitation, riots, and arson. Fans basically burned the place down to the ground. Lyndon McLeod would come to personify this dichotomy of the 90s. He wanted to be a back-to-the-land hippie, but he also wanted to be a violent alpha male as well. He also wanted to be part of the mellow medical marijuana movement. And he wanted to rule over the tattoo world with an iron fist. There was a lot of alternative communities in the 90s, many of them remnants of the 60s and 70s. A lot of them today would probably be called out for being a cult on the internet. But back then, they were able to thrive in relative anonymity. And one of these was the Zendik Farm. The Zendik Farm was started back in 1969 by Lawrence Wolfing, who was a beatnik writer and changed his name to Wolf Zendik. Zendik is a Sanskrit word for outlaw or heretic. And I got to say, that is a cool name. I give him props for that. He, <laughs> he married this woman, Carol, or Errol, and uh, they were like hardcore anarchists, back to the land hippies, and they'd end up having a bunch of communes, traveling all over the country in school buses, first in California, then in Florida, and in the 90s, they moved to North Carolina. They traveled around making money selling bumper stickers that read, Stop Bitchin' and Start a Revolution. And they had their own 64-page newspaper they'd print up a few times a year, which is all pretty cool shit, in my opinion. I dig it. North Carolina attracts a lot of hippies and weirdos, musicians especially, the, with the bluegrass scene there. And I actually have a lot of friends there, and we have a lot of listeners there, too. So, uh, hey to all the peeps in North Carolacky. Anyway, this Lyndon McLeod became a member of this commune in 1999. He says he was lured there by a girl. Uh, doing research, I discovered that there was a really pretty green-haired hippie girl that used to sit outside of record stores and health food stores in Asheville, North Carolina, selling the Zendik Farm newspapers and enticing guys to join. Uh, maybe it was her who lured Lyndon there. Who knows? Their stated goal was to help save the earth from ecological collapse, find a way of living closer to nature, grow all their food. They had livestock and gardens and recycled everything and built their structures from salvaged wood and had a huge library that was all donated books. You know, which I totally get the appeal for. I actually pretty much dedicated my life to the same thing at the same time as Lydon McLeod. And we kind of like have these weird parallel lives, me and Anne, to be honest. Oh, boy. Let's uh, <laughs> find out where those lives diverge. Lyndon only made it a year with them, however, before moving on. He'd gone full hippie during his time there, all in on peace and love and living cooperatively and communally. 
But he says his experience on the commune turned him virulently anti-hippie, and he moved to Denver, Colorado, where he immersed himself in guns, heavy metal music, and motorcycles. Anything he could find that he considered the opposite of flower power and hippies. Uh, Lyndon McLeod left the Zendik Farm commune right before a new member named Helen Zuman arrived. Helen had recently graduated from Harvard and would stay on at Zendik Farm for five years, then write a book entitled Mating in Captivity about her experiences on the commune. What the book focuses on is how relationships, particularly sexual relationships, were handled and controlled. The commune believed that monogamous relationships between two people ran counter to tribal living. Wolf wrote, quote, Possessive attitudes about sex lead to jealousy, hostility, hate, violence, murder, end quote. Basically, they saw monogamy as a product of what they called death culture. But it wasn't an open, free love situation. Sex had to be prearranged and approved by the group's dating administrators, or as they called them, date space straighter. <laughs> date space straighter. Oh, that's what they called them. And it could be complicated. The woman would have to be physically examined to see where she was on her menstrual cycle. And if she was in a period of high fertility, uh, the date couldn't move forward for fear of pregnancy. For some reason, they did not allow condoms. Uh, but once approved, the specific time and place was assigned for the couple. And if they were lucky, they were given a small cabin with a double bed. If they weren't lucky, they'd have to take a blanket into the woods and just make do. Because romantic relationships between couples was seen as a detriment to the group as a whole, the concept of falling in love with one single person was discouraged. This was all further complicated by the fact that Helen was a virgin, and that she had a sensitive and caring heart that was at odds with the cold structure of the commune. Eventually, after being emotionally and sexually manipulated by the group leaders for years, Helen left, convinced they were in fact a cult, and started writing about her experiences. Yeah, I'd say controlling who people sleep with, is, it's a sure sign of a cult. You know, I have no problem with a bunch of hippies going off grid and trying to live off the land. I, I, it's really cool to me, you know. But I'm basically an anarchist. When an all-powerful leader starts dictating bizarre rules, telling you who you can and can't have sex with, yeah, you're in a cult. Time to move on. <laughs> well, Lyndon McLeod sent an email to Helen telling her how he'd been a member of the farm as well and agreed that it was a cult. They became friendly and started corresponding talking often over the internet. At first, it seemed like they had a lot in common. They were both seekers, searching out new ways of living and thinking, trying to be closer to nature, to live in balance with the earth. Apparently, though, Lyndon started thinking of her romantically. He started seeing them as a couple. and He was in love with her, though they'd never actually met in real life. But he became more and more aggressive. His emails were filled with anger and rage at everything from the system to pacifists and hippies. He tells her he's a quote-unquote recovering leftist and had grown into a quote 
Shiva the Destroyer archetype who likes to watch ship burn. And he tells her that society is going to fall apart and it's because of race relations and the mixing of genetics. When Lyndon reveals himself to be a violent, deeply troubled, and angry man, openly flirting with racism and eugenics, the Harvard-educated Helen Zuman, basically a hippie who dreamed of world peace and growing her own food, stopped all contact with him. And this completely fueled Lyndon's hatred of women, especially intelligent women. He goes full macho man. He works as a ranch hand, an oil driller, farmer, and a carpenter, saying he loved manual labor and working with his hands. And he's a really big guy. He's six foot five, very muscular. And he says he just relished physical work that he thinks women couldn't handle, thinking that jobs like this prove that men are superior to women. But in the early 2000s, Lyndon meets a man named Michael Swinard, who is running a medical marijuana operation. Now, this was a really wild time. While places like California, Washington State, and Colorado had passed laws legalizing cannabis for medical use, it was still very much federally illegal, which it actually still is. But at the time, the Bush administration, who was in office then, was actively trying to stamp it out, sending the DEA out to medical groves and dispensaries, very famously raiding a number of places in Santa Cruz, California, only to have all the hippies and patients chain themselves to the Fed's vehicles and hold a big protest, causing a big old stink. So legally, medical marijuana was shady at best, and it was completely unregulated. It was really just a free-for-all. There was no real legitimacy, and it was a cash-only business. And it was a dangerous time when gangsters, rip-offs, and thieves proliferated. The price of weed was really high. So Lyndon's tough guy swagger, his six-foot-five frame and muscles, yeah, they probably came in pretty handy there. But Lyndon proved himself to have a short fuse and serious anger issues. In 2012, after getting in an argument, he pulled a gun and threatened to kill two co-workers. He was arrested and put on probation, but the case was eventually thrown out. He was a loose cannon, but he was working his way up the industry and making a lot of money. But like they say, more money, more problems. And in 2015, things went very bad when a shady deal went down and Lyndon ended up losing $23,000. Lyndon put all the blame on his boss and claimed Swinyard ripped him off. So Lyndon McLeod cut all ties with Swinyard and left the medical marijuana business angry, bitter, and swearing revenge. He left right on time, though, for just two years later, Swinard would be wrapped up in the biggest pot bust in Colorado state history, the federal government calling it Operation Toker Poker. <laughs> Fuck. Toker Poker. <laughs> what the name? Operation Toker Poker. <laughs> <laughs> Eleven businesses were involved and 74 indictments passed down, resulting in the largest marijuana conspiracy ring brought down by the federal government. 
It was so big, it even involved two former Denver Broncos football players, Derek Pierce and Joel Dresman, who claimed they thought they were involved with a legitimate business. It's just nothing was legitimate back then. But Lyndon McLeod had found a new passion and a new business venture. Tattoos. Like many Gen Xers, Lyndon started getting tattoos and was soon completely obsessed. He became friendly with a Denver tattoo artist named Jeremy Costello, who put a lot of ink into Lyndon's skin. Lyndon still had a lot of money saved up from his foray into the cannabis business and was looking to invest it into something legitimate, to launder it, turn it over. So he and Jeremy decided to open their own tattoo parlor called All Heart Industry Tattoo. Lyndon quickly established himself as the boss. It was his money and he ran the show. Though the truth was he wasn't an artist at all and really knew nothing about tattoos, the business, or the culture. And Lyndon is a dick. He's just an asshole. That's his personality. He was a terrible boss. He berated the staff. He micromanaged everything, a total control freak. Though he didn't know the craft or how a tattoo shop should be run, And he was especially harsh on women, the women artists in particular. Any woman who seemed smarter than him would fall under his wrath. At one point, Lyndon asked artist Danny Schofield to tattoo a friend of his for free. When Danny objected, Lyndon berated him, screamed in his face and threw $100 bills at him while asking him if that was enough. And the customers, too saw Lyndon McLeod as cocky, arrogant, and rude, which was terrible for business, especially tattoos. Lost in his ego trips, he demean and berate staff right in front of the customers, showing off his manly power. When you get a tattoo, you know, you basically hang out in the tattoo shop for like untold hours. First, you got to pick out your design, talk to the artist, look at Flash, check out all the weird shit in their shop. Then you come to get the tattoo. But you like always have to wait, chilling while the artist either finishes up with a customer or puts the final touches on the flash. And then there's all the hours of the actual tattooing, which can take days depending on the piece, often sitting there for six hours at a time. And then when it's healed, you got to come back and show off how it looks. And then usually you start the process all over again. So when this misogynist asshole was making everyone uncomfortable, it was not a hit with customers who stopped coming back and started leaving bad reviews. Meanwhile, Lyndon started asking Jeremy to teach him how to tattoo. And, you know, learning the tattoo is a ritual. I know a lot of tattoo artists. First, you have to start drawing flash, just drawing, drawing, drawing. Then you slowly apprentice, studying, paying dues, and very slowly you start working your way up from sweeping floors and closing the shop to doing very small pieces. It takes years to apprentice properly. But Lyndon wanted to skip all that and go right to being a tattoo artist. So when Jeremy politely declined to teach him, Lyndon was irate. And within a year, customers had completely stopped returning. The shop had garnered a terrible reputation 
and it was forced to close. Jeremy cut all ties with Linden afterwards, and he went and opened a new shop called the Six Collective that was actually pretty successful. After all heart industry tattoo shut down, an artist named Alicia Cardenas got the space and used it as a satellite shop for her studio, Soul Tribe Tattoos, one of the biggest shops in the area. And she ran the spot very successfully. Linden was a failure, his former employees going on to be successful with their own shops. And he was particularly incensed that a woman had taken over his old space and that it was now doing incredibly well. The idea of a woman being able to succeed where he failed drove him mad. And not just any woman. Alicia Cardenas was noted for being a feminist artist in Denver's male-populated tattoo scene. She was also proudly Chicana, believed in diversity, and was an activist and community organizer known as Mama Matriarch. Alicia Cardenas basically represented everything Lyndon McLeod hated. But Lyndon decided to show them all, and he opened up another tattoo studio. This one called Flat Black Ink. And Flat Black Ink, it went down even faster than the last tattoo studio, lasting merely months. Shocking. (laughs) At this point, he lost a lot of money in the tattoo game, made a lot of enemies, and made himself look like a jackass as well. Stinging from this string of defeats, he decided to retreat into the forest and live off the land, and purchased 38 acres in the San Isabel Forest, about 170 miles south of Denver. He starts work on converting a storage container into a home, which is actually pretty cool. There's this whole culture of storage container living. I've even seen storage containers turn into coffee shops in San Francisco. And he lived in a tent while he worked on it. And he basically cut all ties with his friends and family, living on the land and discovering his, quote, true barbarian self. Instead of finding solace and harmony in nature, living at peace with the changing seasons and growing his own food, he instead used the solitude to completely embrace his masculinity becoming as macho and testosterone-fueled as he could. He was the ultimate alpha male in his mind. He made videos of himself drinking whiskey and smoking cigars, working out with weird shit like chains and cables, shooting his guns, riding his motorcycle, flexing his muscles, showing off his tattoos. He does kind of look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'll give him that. And the storage container house? It came out really nice. It had concrete countertops that he'd made himself, these beautiful windows he'd welded in. It was completely finished, and from inside, you couldn't tell it was a storage container at all. I have to say that is pretty cool accomplishment because, like, the whole storage container culture, it's, it's a cool thing. And on New Year's Day 2018, he officially moved into his new home that he'd built himself with his own two hands. And what do you think he does? He starts a novel. (laughs) Yes. Now he wants to be a writer. Like I said, me and this guy have this weird parallel lives from hippie freaks to medical cannabis farmer to tattoo obsession to living off the grid and now writing. Only during my journey, I went out of my way to be kind, 
understanding and empathetic. And he goes out of his way to be a total misogynist dickhead. But we're both on that Gen X trip. And honestly, oh, you have to give it to him because he did write his book, which we know is a feat in itself. And he self-published the book in 2018 and sold it on Amazon with the tagline, the book that philosophizes with a jackhammer. Uh, the novel is called Sanction, and it's an unruly beast at nearly 4,500 pages. Guy could have used a serious editor. <laughs> Made up of three sub-novels that are each 1,200 to 1,700 pages. And just to be clear, dear listeners, while we do a lot of research on this show, neither of us actually read or ever plan on reading this book. Not gonna do it. <laughs> In a bizarre literary twist, he writes under the name Roman McClay, but the protagonist in the story is named Lyndon McLeod, his own name. And it's it's basically it's him. It's just a slight veneer of fiction on him. It's so weird. Like a lot of writers have made themselves characters in their books, like Richard Chismar, who we interviewed. He did it in the Boogeyman series. And Brett Easton Ellis has done it a couple of times. But if you're going to do that, why write under the pseudonym at all? Yeah, it's strange. Uh, ever modest in the book. He is a superior human specimen whom advanced artificial intelligence chooses as the most perfect being on Earth and therefore duplicates and distributes his DNA to 1.6 million other men to accelerate mankind's development. <laughs> gag me with a spoon <laughs> it, and you know it's really amusing to hear him talking about his writing as i don't think he's ever taken an english class or studied creative writing at all he claims that mainstream novels have to be written on an eighth grade level but because he's self-publishing he's able to use quote high-end language and an insane vocabulary hyper-constructive sentences. Sentences with a hundred words in them and four semicolons. <laughs> a hundred word sentences with four semicolons. What do you think? Shakespeare-like, right? Totally. Next Shakespeare for sure. <laughs> he also says that no other novel has the internal thoughts of characters, which isn't allowed in fiction. Has this guy ever read a book? <laughs> I don't think so. But he's able to break that rule and reveal the internal thoughts of the characters in his book. Well, yeah. what a, what a I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm convinced he legit never read a book. Just like he never, you know, studied tattoo artistry. Like he's just winging all of this with zero uh, actual effort. Yeah, yeah, it is like the tattooing thing. He just wants to jump in there and like claim that he's the best and he the has expert. no idea what the fuck he's talking about. And of course, the book is just over the top misogynistic, stating rather matter of factly that women are a lower species than men, that they can't do, quote, the kind of jobs that men do that only men can do. Yeah, spit on this guy. There's all kinds of tough guy scenes showing off what an exquisite sample of masculinity he is. Like, quote, This tiny, crusty middle manager asshole saunters up, and he knows nothing of the hell we just went through, and he tells us to clean some shit up 
as if we're goofing off. I told that little corporate fuck that he was in no uncertain terms never to speak to me ever again. If he failed, I assured him I would murder him and his whole substandard family and put their sawed-off heads on spikes around the perimeter of the White House. <laughs> oh, God. He also uses the real names and identities of people he knows, particularly those he considers enemies, and recounts in the book how they've wronged him and how he wants to exact revenge on them. Which is pretty scary, especially because in the book he's on a vengeance mission, setting out to kill all those who've wronged him, specifically those working in the medical marijuana or tattoo industries. Costello and Swinnard were two of the main villains talked about in the book and are actually killed by the fictional McLeod in the novel during a killing spree where he murders 46 people. Jeremy Costello is mentioned over 100 times. Pain demands a response. And that was his catchphrase. And McLeod would say about his book, I'm describing a future wherein the most aggressive and grudge-holding males are engaged in a full-on war with modernity. In promoting his book, Lyndon MacLeod became a member of the alt-right's online Manosphere community. The Manosphere is a bizarre realm that brings together rugged mountain men, nerdy incels, white supremacists, radical anti-technology folks, pseudo-intellectuals, Norse pagans, and fundamental Christians, all bound together by their hatred of women and feminism, seeing all the world's ills as caused by the feminist movement. And just to show how bizarrely diverse this movement is, in the opening pages of Sanction, McLeod references two writers that informed his views on masculinity and modernity, Jack Donovan and Ted Kaczynski. Ted Kaczynski is obviously the Unabomber, who, besides being violently anti-technology, was also basically an incel or involuntary celibate, though the term hadn't been invented yet. Ted Kaczynski was a virgin who hated women and, as most know, moved to a shack in Montana wilderness to escape the modern world. Now, Jack Donovan, on the other hand, is quite different. A self-described masculinist and white supremacist, he'd led a chapter of the Wolves of Vinland, a Norse neo-pagan organization and SPLC-designated hate group for four years. But he was no incel. He was actually openly homosexual, though he was quick to say he was not gay as the term gay implied an effeminate and weak man. Uh, so what did the term what did the term homosexual imply? So he's a masculine man. He just man, likes other men. He likes manly likes men. Other men. Got it. Okay. Men with big muscles. God. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the Wolves of Vinland, which is also featured in McLeod's book, is an esoteric Norse pagan fascist movement with known branches in the US, France, Italy, Germany, Serbia, Norway, Spain, and Russia. They claim to be an inclusive organization, but the wolves are racially and ethnically exclusive and advocate for a pagan integralist society based on tribal units. 
The wolves are modeled after outlaw biker gangs like the Hell's Angels, in which members first join a feeder organization and are not initiated into the main group until they have proven themselves. Members of the feeder organization, called Operation Werewolf, prove their fitness and belonging through the development of combat, homesteading, and subsistence farming skills. More werewolves. <laughs> the wolves of Vinland, like Unabomber Ted Kaczynski, see themselves as severed from nature by industrialization and commercialization. This, they believe, results in weakness, both mental and physical, which they think can be remedied through physical fitness and the accumulation of homesteading skills and revival of nature-centered pagan ritual. It's like some of this I, I, I agree with, but they like, they like, it's like any cult where they like use kind of almost known truths or, or things that people are going to like and then bend them to their own disturbing beliefs and use them as a form of manipulation, control and gaining followers, you know? Yeah. Trick people into the fold and then exploit. Yeah. Like cults, 95% of what they say is usually really cool. And that's why people join them. The other yep. part like, usually overshadows. It. Yes, for sure. So you have pagans, Christians, homosexual men, Nazis, incels, nerds, homesteaders, preppers, and redneck hillbillies all coming together somehow and uniting in their hatred of women. Yeah, it's really weird. You'd think these guys would all hate each other, like hardcore Christians and homosexuals, but uh, Lyndon would describe the Manosphere movement like this. All white males are violent and will be more violent as they are made irrelevant by a country that hates them. Their limic system is in revolt against the modern world. War is coming. <sighs> Lyndon started appearing on podcasts that supported his cause and on Manosphere YouTube channels. And he gained a fairly large Twitter account. People were buying his books, digging what he was saying, and he developed a following. Defending his radical views and strong personality, Lyndon said, Yes, I'm a jerk. I have high testosterone and low patience. I have been in more street fights than you have teeth. I've been arrested on felony weapons charges. I've had three women in bed at once. I'm aggro as fuck, dude. And I have MAOA gene and 4% Neanderthal DNA too. A podcaster. <laughs> a podcaster traveled out to his land in Colorado to interview him, and he stated, I'm proud of who I am, but I'm not proud of everything I'm about. I have thoughts, I have opinions, I have ideas, I have instincts that I think are wrong. But I have them. They're mine. They're real. And I won't pretend I don't have them. But that doesn't mean I'm proud of them. I don't know how other people feel. I don't know if a person has to deny what they are or embrace it fully. I have to admit, this is who I am, and it's ugly. Which, which is what? sad. You know, like, if you see that you're being wrong, change yourself. You know what yes. I mean? Like, <laughs> make yourself a better person. Come on. He went on to say that he was lonely, but had found a refuge in his hostility. It is, man, that is sad really dark 
a refuge in hostility. Fuck, man. It's a red flag. Can can I just... I want to read a review I found of his book, Sanction, before we get like too far <laughs> away from the book, because I think it's really great. I think we can't not include this. So this is a review of his book, Sanction. Fuck you, I can't summarize this. This plot is like three angry gorillas screaming at your soul. You <laughs> could think and consider and try to understand one, but all three at once is not going to happen. The basic plot, a politician slash billionaire wants to use gene editing tech to rewrite the DNA of criminals. Think serial killers and just generally violent people. And this plan requires the creation of two different styles of artificial intelligence. They have a plan and other plans and inside those plans are more plans and inside those plans is a middle finger pointed right at God. And when God is offended, bad things happen to his creation. So yeah, I just, I love the the plot. It's like three <laughs> angry gorillas screaming at your soul. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to include that. But it sounds um, better written than his book. I know, right? <laughs> Um, and so he, in addition to the book and all these like quotes of his, uh, refuge in hostility, he also gets really into genetics coming up with some crazy theories. He comes to believe that the Northern part of the U S was all English and that the Southern part was all Scottish. And because of this, the two areas had completely different genetics. He makes posts on Twitter espousing this theory. One of them elegantly starting it as such. Americans don't understand their own history. Northern Yankee fucks are genetically different from Southern rednecks. We are nothing alike. Yeah, and this theory is ridiculous on just so many levels. Not only discounting all the other European countries that came to the Americas. I mean, the Dutch had been in North America almost as long as the English. New York City was originally called New Amsterdam. And German Hessians had fought in the Revolutionary War as mercenaries and there's tons of Irish and Italian, and the country is literally called a melting pot. But to even think that the genetics between Scotland and England were so diverse and un unique, because I just did a quick Google search and found a recent study of the DNA of Britons actually shows that genetically, there is not a unique Celtic group of people in the United Kingdom. According to the data, those of Celtic ancestry in Scotland and Cornwall are more similar to the English than they are to other Celtic groups. Basically, the DNA of English, Irish, Welsh, and Scots are all made up of native Celtic Britons mixed up with a whole mess of West Germanic tribes. The Angles, Saxons, Jutes, and Frisians, all who settled in Southern Britain following the withdrawal of the Romans. So, like, they're mutts. All of these European areas coming there and and then when they came to America, it only made them more mutts. Lyndon makes a YouTube video, ostensibly to show off his storage locker house, but ends up ranting against perceived enemies, accusing his old business partners of ripping him off and locking him out. He says it's his Scottish genetics that make him unable to forget any wrong done to him, but that he's learned to channel his dark thoughts through writing. I mean, telling your dark thoughts through writing is good, but the rest of it, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he also tweets nice things like, our entire society is made up of shitty little fuckers 
who insult badasses and get away with it because law enforcement and social norms protect the weak from the strong. I'm over it. The weak better buckle up. Shit is about to get real. What a fucking asshole. And he also says this one. You ready? Religion demands virginity in women. Mm, so <laughs> insightful. He's also fond of quoting the book Why Honor Matters by Tamler Summers, which states, quote, Many honor cultures impose strict codes of chastity and fidelity for their female members. Violating the code can lead to shame, ostracizing, physical punishment, and even murder. End quote. Scary. He's espousing militant traditionalism and saying men should have complete and utter dominance over women. And I watched one video of him on YouTube where he says, he would kill for a virgin bride because every sexual partner a woman has, she becomes less able to ever being faithful. And he says, and this is like a quote, it doesn't matter how many partners a guy has. He could have slept with a hundred women. It won't change his ability to be loyal. So like morally speaking, women can't have sex, but a guy can have a hundred sex partners. But it begs the question, who the hell are all these guys fucking? It takes two to tango. It makes no sense. If if men can have 100 partners, women can't. Like, who are they fucking? You know what I mean? But <laughs> he sees women as subhuman. And he goes so far as to say, a mother who actually works and leaves the house sets such a bad example for her children that that's the reason people are gay and transgender. And which is also weird because he's dissing gay people now, but the one guy is gay and he's like a hero of his who he talks about in his book. This guy's just all over the fucking place. He's just a giant dumpster fire, like of spewing trash that. But his disturbing message has an audience. His books are selling and he has a little following going that he uses to capitalize on. He creates a Patreon account where fans can pay to talk to him via video. Can you imagine paying to talk to this asshole? Oh my god. Just and he- throw, go down to the nearest body of water and fucking throw your money into it and then watch it sink <laughs> and that's a better use of it. He tells his fans things like this. I was evolving into a barbarian. A man that felt and thought in a different way. I look at my hands and I see echoes and phantoms and specters as if under three suns casting six shadows. God, the great mathematician, wants endless, if punctuated, war. And all this hippie peace and forgiveness talk is wicked, in my opinion. And I leave it to you guys to figure it out. <sighs> and... To add gasoline to the fire, he's drinking vodka from the bottle, is addicted to opiate painkillers, and he's starting to sound really crazy. Be mean, lash out at people. He keeps comparing himself to to Ted Kaczynski, the infamous Unabomber who murdered three people and injured 23 others during his bombing campaign. And he gets in this ridiculous Twitter war with some other far-right lunatics and makes some very bold threats against them. That gets him a visit from the FBI. 
And he starts really scaring his Patreon members, pissing them off as well, being drunk and distasteful, and the whole thing fell apart. One member, a German guy named Andre Thiel, who thought McLeod was a gifted genius when it came to writing, even called law enforcement in the U.S., saying this guy is a ticking time bomb, warning Denver police and the FBI, calling his books a manifesto for right-wing terrorism. Yeah, uh, Andre would describe McLeod like this, quote, he actually hated, openly hated women. I never experienced a man who openly showed that he held no respect whatsoever for women. McLeod went to Jeremy's new tattoo shop, Six Collective in Denver, and posted flyers in the windows advertising his book, which of course features Jeremy in it as a villain who's murdered by McLeod. Jeremy says he had no idea he was in the books at the time, because who the hell is going to read, what was it, 4,500 pages of bullshit? (laughs) But it's so creepy thinking of him there at that tattoo shop, man. Fuck. Yeah. Lyndon then took photos of the storefront and put them on Instagram with the caption, quote, AMOA shortchange allows for dopamine to remain unmetabolized for 100 times longer on the DMPFC than a man of common genes. This is the genetic science of the grudge. If our man, the man in question, has this gene, he will never forget betrayal, ever. Isaiah said as an inmate 1618039 allowed an asymmetric grin to pull the top lift over the bronze incisor and feel the metal glare. Hashtag war is coming, end quote. Yeah, he's, he said that no one could match his level of genius as a writer. And I think that's a great example there. Jesus Christ, word salad. <laughs> and by now, novel sales have stalled. There's only so much of a market for this stuff. He'd blown his savings on wild schemes and he was racking up huge credit card debt. But he still had his land and his cool storage container house. But, you know, I can tell you, living off the grid, it's really hard. I mean, it's just difficult, and especially in a Colorado winter, I can't even imagine. And at some point, he packs it all in and cruises to Louisiana to visit some of his hardcore fans. (sighs) So there is a person for everyone, I guess. We should know this based on our (laughs) last episode and all of the women who fawned over (laughs) accused and convicted serial killer Richard Ramirez. Because Lyndon meets Anne. She'd read his work and was a fan, which, wow, okay. (laughs) They hook up and become a couple. He moves in with her. She apparently had some money, too, because when Lyndon asked to borrow $20,000 to make a film about the importance of horses in the formation of mankind entitled War Horse, she agreed and gave him the money. The two then drove around the country together, filming scenes for the movie. But Lyndon was, of course, an emotionally abusive asshole, and when he had to go to the hospital in Salt Lake City, he was violent as well, punching Anne. Yeah, after he hit her, uh, Anne decided to leave him and headed back to Louisiana. But she left him with her van and motorcycle so that he could finish making his film. Uh, Lyndon, owing her all this money, soon stopped communicating with Anne, and then she discovered he'd moved $37,000 of her cryptocurrency into one of his accounts, and he was actively stealing from her. 
She decided to go to the local police and reported the van stolen and the domestic violence as well. She claims officers gave her the runaround, telling her they couldn't report the van stolen because it had been taken in a different state. So she had to report the crime to police in Pleasant Grove, Utah. She said she did, but the officer she spoke to didn't know whether to file it as a breach of trust or theft, and they ignored her allegations of domestic violence. Mm. Act 2. The Massacre. On December 27th, 2021, at 5.25 p.m., video surveillance showed a tall man with a long beard wearing all-black tactical gear with a police badge and emblem exit an all-black van and stroll into 56 Broadway in downtown Denver, Soul Tribe Tattoo Shop. As we mentioned earlier, Soul Tribe Tattoo Shop was owned by Alicia Cardenas, a strong, powerful woman deeply respected in a community who honored her by calling her Mama Matriarch. Alicia, an indigenous Mexican artist, had struggled and worked her way up, cleaning houses and delivering pizzas as she learned to tattoo, saving every penny for her dream of one day owning her own tattoo parlor. And she did it through sheer willpower and hard work, saying along the way how difficult it was for a woman to excel in this world of bikers and bros, becoming what a fellow artist described as, as, quote, a bastion and figurehead of the community, end quote. Lyndon hated her. He hated her because she was a powerful woman. He hated her because she was a success where he was a failure, that she was a better artist than him, that she was a better tattooist than him, that she was a better business person than him. He hated that she was loved and respected. He hated her very genes, which were a mixture of indigenous peoples, Spanish and French. He'd already killed her in his fiction, writing about it, imagining it, and now he was going to do it for real. Linda McLeod walked into Mama Matriarch Alicia Cardenas's tattoo parlor with an M4 military-style assault rifle and opened fire, killing Alicia, her jewelry manager, Alyssa Gunn Maldonada, and seriously wounding Maldonada's husband with a shot to the chest. He then fled in his ex-girlfriend's black van. He drove one mile to the home of Jeremy Costello, knocking on the side door, posing as a delivery man and asking to be let inside. Jeremy's girlfriend, Chelsea Andrews, was suspicious and refused to open the door. Lyndon then returned to the home with a sledgehammer and began to smash the door down, firing shots inside. But Jeremy and Chelsea were able to flee into the Sixth Collective tattoo shop that connected to their house and take cover. Lyndon then went and set Jeremy's van on fire before fleeing the neighborhood. Next on his enemies list was his former medical marijuana business partner, Michael Swinnard, who'd gone on to become a local contractor after being busted. He burst into the 67-year-old man's apartment and opened fire with the M5, killing him instantly. As he's pulling away in the van, police are arriving, and he gets into a brief firefight with them before managing to somehow lose them and heads to the suburban neighborhood of Lakewood, 
pulling to a stop in front of Lucky 13 Tattoo. He enters the tattoo shop, shooting and killing tattoo artist Danny Schofield, who'd once worked for him and refused to tattoo Lyndon's friends for free. Lyndon McLeod then ran out of Lucky 13 Tattoo and fled on foot. Again, the police catch up to him. Again, after exchanging fire, he's somehow able to lose them. He then ducks into Ted's Montana Grill. Storming into the restaurant, he walks behind the bar and pours himself a tall glass of whiskey. When the bartender, a woman, demanded he leave, he held a gun to her head and said, Guess who's in charge? Ain't you, bitch. There's a video of this on the internet. It's weird and scary. No one really knows what exactly is happening. Some people are nervously laughing, and you can hear a woman in the background say, quote, this is weird, I'm out of here, end quote. And then Lyndon just gulps down his whiskey and leaves. It's now 6.10 p.m., and he walks into the lobby of the Hyatt House Hotel, where he seems to just randomly shoot and kill Sarah Steck. Sarah Steck was a promising artist who just happened to be working that night, and it doesn't even appear that Lyndon knew her at all. It's sad and tragic and utterly senseless. Act 3. Poetic Justice Ashley Ferris from Lakewood Police Department was listening to the scanner traffic and immediately noticed a pattern. Tattoo shops. The killer was targeting tattoo shops. She was the first one to notice this. She headed to a tattoo shop in her jurisdiction, the Lakewood area, because she's smart and a good cop, and she started setting up a perimeter. Ashley was 29 years old, blonde, beautiful, smart, and tough, as she stands in the center of the road on the corner of West Alska and South Vance. Lyndon McLeod came strolling up to her, loading bullets into a magazine. Because he was wearing a tactical vest with a badge on it, she thought for a moment that he could be some sort of law enforcement, and she asked him who he was and where he was coming from. Lyndon responded that he was coming from the Wells Fargo Bank, and Ashley asked if he was a security guard there. He shook his head no. The two sat there in the middle of that Colorado crossroads, like something from a Western movie. The violent killer and the law. Face to face. Lyndon's fingers moved towards the gun in his waistband, Ashley saying to him, don't do this. The bearded, six-foot-three, muscle-covered sexist smiled at the pretty blonde police officer, a woman in position of authority and power, and he said, I'll show you what I can do. Lyndon McLeod drew his pistol at Ashley Ferris and squeezed off a shot a bullet ripping into her gut, while at the same instant, Ashley drew her gun as well, popping off three rounds before she felt her leg go paralyzed and fell to the ground. As Ashley lay there, she looked out to see Lyndon McLeod topple over as well, thinking to herself, okay, I got him, he's down. Then a great wave of peace settled over Ashley. She temporarily lost her hearing and couldn't hear the sirens and shouting. She was suffering a severe auditory exclusion hallucination. The lights reflecting on the street suddenly unimaginably beautiful and serene. 
she was in a weird kind of dreamland. And it wasn't until she was being carried into the hospital that she heard the screaming of, officer down, officer down. And she realized that she was the officer who was down. And it dawned on her what had happened. She'd later say, Thinking about that right now, I still get goosebumps. It was hard for me to believe I was the officer down. The bullet had fragmented when it entered her and hit her sciatic nerve, paralyzing her right leg. But after several surgeries, she was able to use it again. And after years of physical therapy, she eventually made a full recovery. While she says it was just happenstance that it was her that shot him, she does say, I do think that irony is kind of beautiful. That guy didn't like women so much. But the incident proved to be a very positive one for Ashley, as she'd later say. I needed a moment that would shake me and wake me, and that's what I got. No one knew it at the time, but Ashley was going through a very difficult time. She says, I was struggling with hypervigilance and stress, and I needed to be getting mental health help that I wasn't getting. It was my first Christmas alone after going through a divorce. It was really miserable. I was feeling very alone. And just that day, she'd been contemplating self-harm. But everything changed when she saw the dedication, love, and loyalty of her fellow police officers and the paramedics. As she would say, To see them run into a scene that they still believed to be active with an active gunman, they run in and they grab me and they save me. I wasn't going to give up the fight for my life after that. No way. Today, Ashley works for the University of Tennessee under the Institute for Public Service. And she says she hopes her story shows others to hold on. Adding, Your purpose may also be just moments down the road. But our story does not end there with Scumbag extraordinaire Lyndon McLeod getting fatally shot three times by a powerful, intelligent, and beautiful blonde woman. It actually, unfortunately, just gets weirder. Act four, War Horse. Remember Anne, Lyndon's ex-girlfriend whom he stole all the money from? Two weeks after the massacre, she received a package in the mail. A package from Lyndon McLeod. A package from beyond the grave. In it was a thumb drive with the movie War Horse that he and Anne had been working on. The film she loaned him $20,000 to make. He'd actually finished the film. It was 47 minutes long. But it wasn't like they had originally planned it all. Instead, the footage resembled the events of the massacre. McLeod rides around in the same van, wearing the same tactical gear he'd been wearing the day of the murders. There's no narrative structure, no story. It's just made of countless quick cuts. In it, McLeod is wearing the same tactical gear he wore on the day of the real-life massacre, standing in front of Costello's tattoo shop, loading weapons into the van he'd later use in the murders. There's a shot of him running with a rifle toward the camera, while wearing a black hockey mask, which was something the fictional version of McLeod does during the rampage in the Sanction book. A lot of the film is close-up shots of his book's artwork, and one biblical quote is featured repeatedly. I have pursued mine enemies and destroyed them. 
The package Anne received also contained digital copies of the books and a letter signing over all rights and royalties to her. Originally, she said she didn't know if she should publish it, and she said she didn't want to, out of respect for the victims, saying, He sends it to me after he stole all this stuff from me, and he says, here, make money with this, as if I wouldn't have any kind of moral problem with it. It's like he didn't even think I would be hurt over this. And then he sends me this box from the grave. I don't even know how I feel about anything right now. And I'm out a whole bunch of money. Everyone is saying you should put it out there so you can recoup your money. But let's not act like there is not a moral problem with publishing that. But she later posted the film to his website and made it available to watch for 30 bucks a pop. She defended herself, saying he'd stolen the 20000 from her as well as the 37,000 in cryptocurrency, and she just had to survive. But the website and film are now gone from the internet, and the production company that edited it, they won't even admit who they are, and they have never been identified. Anne claims some proceeds went to the victims' families, but the victims' families say they have not received any funds, and they're not sure they would accept any if they were offered. But most disturbingly, Following his violent shooting spree, Lyndon McLeod has become a saint in the deeper fringe areas of the internet, especially in the accelerationist spaces on Telegram. Accelerationists are white supremacists who believe that a race war is not only inevitable, but desirable, and is the only path to achieving white power by bringing about the downfall of current systems of government. Accelerationism's call for armed resistance by lone wolves in the name of hastening inevitable societal collapse. See McCloud as a fucking hero. Uh, and there's a small group of devout followers and friends intent on carrying on with McCloud's legacy. Legacy, quote. They see the novel Sanction as a mind virus intended to leave the reader wanting to follow their instinct toward violence and accelerate the collapse of society. And so I think Krista and I, both of us being the parents of daughters, can agree. To stop the collapse of society and to counter these assholes, we need more strong, independent women in the world. Here, here, we should, uh, yeah, I like that. We should, um, I don't know, maybe when we post this, we should like post a bunch of links to like cool books by women or uh, there's a lot of um, really cool like tributes to Alicia Cardenas, like just photos and links to her artwork and the tattoos that she did. We should post that stuff as well. Um, yeah, this guy's trash. Thank God that that um, very heroic. I mean, God, that had to be so tense to be in the crosswalk with that. I mean, he probably tat. He was six five, yeah. towered over that policewoman, and she and he's huge, like so muscle bound. It's crazy. Yeah, and he shot her, and she still managed to to shoot him. It's so like a movie, like a a wild west movie, you know, like a dust, yeah. like a yeah, like, like who can draw weeds. quicker? Yeah, yeah. In Denver too, which is like like Wild West yeah. kind of place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, and also the Ashley Ferris did make a complete recovery. She was. Do we say? Do we say that in the show? Yeah, yeah. So she we made a complete recovery, which is yeah, <laughs> which is great. Um, so yeah, 
fuck that guy and fuck Sanction. Sounds yeah. like a bunch of trash. And also, fuck that girl that published the Warhorse shit. Like, she's, I mean, she obviously was not the strongest of moral characters to be hooked up with him in the first place. She uh, was a so. fan. I know. How can you be Gross. a woman and be a fan of a guy who says that you're like a different species that's lower than him? I don't know, it's man. Fucking it's crazy. crazy. It's crazy. Well, there's your story. <laughs> Poetic justice. We hope you enjoyed it. And you know we want to hear from you, dear listeners. Do you have a case you think we should cover? Do we get something wrong? Do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.